I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 1 through 32 this morning. I just want to ask you a question to start out with. How many of you like interruptions? Think about your, uh, think about your favorite show on Netflix or whatever your chosen platform is. How many of you like when your kids interrupt you for that? Or even more so, like when your kids are watching, think about how they don't like the interruptions when they're watching their favorite show. In fact, I found that with my kids, uh, I actually can't even interrupt them. Uh, or, or in the middle of your favorite book, when it's getting to the climax of the, uh, of the story, if someone interrupts you, how does that feel? Or if you're in the middle of a, a putt for birdie. Now I'm thinking golf, but there's also disc golfers out there. And someone yells out, four! How, do you like that? I don't know if disc golfers like it or not, but golf, you know, golfers with a golf ball do not like that. Or what about in the middle of your, you know, you've reached your flow at work or your, whatever you're doing creatively, and you're interrupted. Anyone like being interrupted? Nope. Yeah, you do? Okay, good, Uriah. You're the only one. Well, that's good because... Exodus 12 is an interruption. Actually, it's an interruption in this narrative. You remember, as we have the last several sermons, we've talked about uh, nine plagues, nine judgments that God is bringing on to Egypt and their gods to show that he's the only true God and to make his name known to all the earth. Not just that he's powerful, but that he's gracious because he is asked, he is told, he's commanded that Pharaoh... Let his people go out of their slavery, out of their bondage. And uh, we have 10 plagues all together. We've had nine, and now we have Exodus 12 that is an interruption. So we have to ask why. Why did, the, why did God interrupt us here? Why did God interrupt the, the flow of the narrative? And one, one of the good things for us to do is to remember that this book actually wasn't first written with us in mind. This book was first written, Exodus was first written with a, another audience in mind. And that audience was Israel. That were, they were wandering in the wilderness and they're about to go into the promised land of Canaan. God had promised them. As they, as they come out of Egypt and they go through the promised land, that God's going, or go through the wilderness, that God is going to bring them to the promised land. But they're not there yet. And they're waiting. And they're worried. There are obstacles to getting into the land. They, they don't think they can overcome. And they needed a word from Yahweh. They needed a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord was the interruption of Passover. Passover tells the story of deliverance, holiness, and worship. Passover tells the story of deliverance, holiness, and worship. And at the center of it all was a lamb. So here's the main idea here. Yahweh, the Lord, provided a lamb whose blood delivered from judgment. His blood was going to deliver them from coming judgment and whose body provided a feast for them that called them to holiness and worship. The Lord provided a lamb whose blood delivered them from judgment, coming judgment, and whose body provided a feast for them and calling them to holiness in worship. It's a, remote, a memorial of faith. The lamb is sacrificed so he wouldn't have to judge. So hear the words of our God in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell, any, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. 
you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of, its remain, of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe the right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, shall keep his service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is God's holy word. So here we are, deliverance. Chapter 12, 1 through 13. God is at the point of delivering his people from the land of Egypt. I'm walking down here to get my water, sorry. <laughs> Everyone's freaking out. Um, God is at the point of delivering his people from the land of Egypt. 
And he's done so, as he promised, by a mighty hand. He would, he would bring judgments on his people. And, and now we're at the end, the, the worst judgment of all, the judgment of, of the killing of the firstborn. And he interrupts it as he has, as we have seen, he interrupts it with some instructions for his people. He's, in, he's interrupted it. And the thing at the center of it is this, this process, this, this consecration, the ceremony of killing a lamb. Does anyone ever read this and wonder why? Why did anything have to die? Why did a lamb have to die? But why did anything have to die? Right? Couldn't, have God, couldn't God have just made the distinction between Israel and his people like he did in some of the other plagues? Like the darkness, or the light was shining in Goshen, uh, but it wasn't in the rest of Egypt. Couldn't he just done that? Why did anything have to die? Well, I think one of the reasons is... Because deliverance for them was a process. They needed to know what the process was. They knew that there was not only judgment, there was a way for them to escape. This process happened over time, and it was costly. Before they leave, or before they enter into the promised land, they need to know the process and the cost. Think of it like this. Why did anything have to die? Well, think of a soldier in battle who jumps on the grenade, yeah, right, to save his fellow soldiers from, from dying. One has to die so the rest can live. The lamb dies so Israel can live. So Israel's firstborn can live to see another day. And Yahweh delivers through the death of the lamb. Deliverance. This is, this is the lamb. So he, he gives this whole process of selecting a lamb and keeping it and then killing it. Why did it have to die? That's the only question we're going to answer. That lamb was selected, a male of a year old without blemish. And this, this, was, uh, this was so the people would know that this process of delivering them from judgment was costly. It cost, not only cost them something, it cost the lamb its life and its blood. Deliverance was costly and it was a process that God was using to bring them out of Egypt, bring them out of their slavery. But it wasn't just the lamb, there was more than just the lamb dying and becoming a meal. The lamb actually had to shed its blood. You know, Later on, we're told some of, more of the process of what, what would happen. And maybe this developed, or maybe this is what they did right away, but they would take one lamb who would be killed, and they'd take another lamb who was a scapegoat, and they'd lay their hands on those lambs, and, 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 and symbolically, they would be putting their, their, their sins on the lamb. And as they killed the lamb, which they had to slit its throat, they would put a basin under it to collect some of the blood. It seems odd to us in our culture. We don't really do that. And cultures that do, do that, we look on as strange and maybe backwards a little bit. But th this was a sign for God's people. They had to apply, they had to collect some of the blood of the lamb because part of the process of them being delivered meant that they had to apply some of the blood over the on the doorpost of their house and over the top. It's just as, they go, as you go into a tent or to a house, at that entrance, there has to be blood applied. And then verse 7 tells us the, re the result I mean, verse 7 tells us that this is going to be a sign of faith for them. Do you believe me? Then do this. He sees the blood, that's a sign of faith. Verse 13 is the result of this, is the result. What happens when they do this? I will pass over you. And that's where we get the, the term Passover. That's, that's what we celebrate uh, um, in, in the Lord's Supper. And, and then we celebrate Jesus' death that happened at, during the Passover time. A lamb had to die and had to shed its blood. So both the preparation for this and the application and the meal and the eating of it all pictured, the picture was a picture of haste. 
Because the meal happened so that they could depart in haste. They could depart from, from, from Egypt quickly. They had to have their staff in their hand. They had to have their shoes on. They had to have their, their shirt tucked in, ready to go, ready to get on with it. And so as the meal is prepared, as they're preparing the meal with, with uh, unleavened bread and bitter herbs, maybe representing the hardship of their life there in slavery in Egypt, they're also remembering that a lamb was slain, the blood was shed, so that they could exit. They could leave their slavery. But this meal happened over and over. This was supposed to be a Passover meal. It happened year after year. There was a repetition to it. Every year at the new year for them, which was this, this month of Nisan, of, of uh, March, April, as, as they entered the new year, they, this would be their celebration. And it would come to be like more like a, uh, 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 an Easter and a 4th of July all rolled in one. That's kind of what it was for them. They got, they got freedom from Egypt, uh, and, they, and, they, and they started a, a new year, and they're remembering that it took a sacrifice to do this. And so they were supposed to do this year after year, but every year, the same thing. A lamb had to be killed, shed its blood, apply it to the doorpost. Every year shed its blood, and then later on they'd be sprinkled on the altar as a reminder that this lamb died so that we could be set free. And year after year, do you, how would you feel doing this year after year? Instead of coming to church, sitting, singing, listening, praying, taking the Lord's table, and leaving, once a year, you would come in here, you and a couple of your neighbors would have a lamb, and you'd have to slit this thing's throat, collect its blood. As a, as a remembrance of what it took to deliver you from Egypt. Year after year, you'd have to keep doing this. What might you think? I think the point was, year after year, there is a remembrance that I keep sinning, I keep needing this to happen. That there, there needed to come a time when there was a full and final sacrifice why? Because I keep sinning. I keep needing this blood to be applied so that I don't get judgment. And lo and behold, as we come into the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 29, there's a man, a prophet, one of the final Old Testament prophets, who is the cousin of Jesus, the Messiah. And this man is out there doing his work. He's baptizing, and he's, he's baptizing for repentance. He's teaching people that need to repent and turn to God. And as he's out there, and he's interacting with religious people and non-religious people, and, he's, and he's, he's dunking them under water, and he's doing it for the repentance of sin, he sees a man named Jesus in flesh and blood walking towards him to be baptized. And that old prophet points his finger and says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as they shed the blood year after year, did they know there was going to be a man who would give his life? They didn't know fully what would happen. But they had to be thinking, and in faith, they were thinking, one day God is going to fully and finally forgive my sins. I don't know exactly how, but John tells us exactly how. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And here comes this precious Lamb, and he's baptized to show identification with his people. Not because he needed repentance, but because he knew his people needed. And here he comes, identifying with his people. And that was the lamb who had shed his blood for the sins of the world. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all of them. 
Not single one of them, not past, present, or future. They lose all of it. They don't hang on to any of it. So how can a sinner be delivered by blood? The song tells us by taking a plunge in the blood. It means to believe you have a substitute. The lamb became a substitute. The lamb, this was, this was a, an early teaching of substitutionary atonement. That the only way we can be right with God or delivered from our sin or from our slavery is if we have a substitute. A lamb that sheds its blood in our place and the blood is applied to us. Take the plunge in the blood and lose all your sins. Now question for you. Which of the Israelites who applied the blood on their doorpost and the, over, over their house on the lintel, any of those, or all of those, which ones of those lost their firstborn? If they applied the blood, did any of them lose their firstborn in the judgment? None of them. What, further question. What if they were fearful? What if they did it, but they thought, I'm not sure. This seems weird. I don't know. Maybe I have to do more. What about the doubting? Maybe they saw this as an act of faith and they thought, I'm not sure my faith is enough. I I know he told me to do this, but I'm not sure I have enough faith. If the blood was applied, their firstborn were spared. If they were fearful, but the blood was applied, their firstborn were spared. If they were sleepless at night, not knowing if God would really keep his promise, but the blood was applied, their firstborn were spared. If they were too confident in their own work, but the blood was applied, their firstborn were spared. Friend, I I just want to assure you that if you have turned from your sins to embrace Christ alone, whether you're fearful or doubting or imperfect or, or, or even fighting sin now, if the blood is applied, if you've taken the plunge beneath that blood, you've lost all your guilty stains. There's no judgment left for you. This was a sign of their deliverance. Yahweh would provide a lamb whose blood delivered them from judgment and whose body would provide a feast. So he delivered them from judgment. What did he deliver them for? Well, the lamb's body also provided a feast. You you could see it here in in the meal that we take every Sunday. Underneath are some wafers that remind us that the the lamb's body was given up for you. And the blood, the the cup of of wine or juice is, is a symbolic of the blood being shed for you. And this feast calls Israel, this Passover that is now the Lord's table, is a call for Israel to be holy and to worship, to pursue holiness, to pursue what it, what it is they already are. If they've been delivered, God has called them out to be holy, to worship him, and now he's in the process of making them holy. How do we see that? Well, in verses 14 through 20, we see all of this talk about unleavened bread, did anyone read that this week and, and were like, uh, what's the deal with unleavened bread? What's happening? Like, what's going on? And what's with the serious consequence of being cut off from Israel if you eat leaven during that, that week? If you eat leaven during this, this festival of unleavened bread. This was, friends, a holiday. The festival of unleavened bread was combined with Passover, and it became this, this great holiday for the, the new year of God's people as they, they marked what God did for them, bringing them out. And they were forever, verse 14, supposed to tell their kids about this. And there were some, there were some instructions about this, too. During the, the first and seventh day, they were supposed to assemble together. They were supposed to get together and have a party. They were supposed to rest from their work and they were supposed to worship the Lord. And in the feast, the feast was to include bread without yeast. That's what unleavened means. There's no yeast in this bread. There, it doesn't, it's not going to rise. You know, we have Rhodes Rolls for Thanksgiving meal and for Christmas. And they sit there. You know, I don't make them, but I watch them. 
and they rise, you know, and then you put them in the oven and, and they do their thing. I don't even know how it all works, okay? I shouldn't be talking about it, but that's, you know, they, it rise and it's good, it's delicious, and you put butter and raspberry jam on it, and it's so good. But this was unleavened bread without yeast. We don't do unleavened bread for, for our Thanksgiving meals. So what's the big deal? Why no yeast? Why, why no leaven in it? And it is serious. Why the consequences? Why are they serious? Why do you get cut off from Israel? Why? Well, the yeast took time, right? It took time for the bread to rise. The yeast made it take time for it to be ready to go. And the yeast would then hold them back from their redemption. They were, they were, if they were waiting for the leaven, if they were waiting for the yeast and the, and the bread to do its thing so it would rise, they would miss the exodus, so God says, don't do it. In fact, he, said, he tells this becomes a communal thing, and they, he tells them, start sweeping it out of your house, all of you. And as a people, they were, they were meant to be getting the yeast out, the leaven out, as a representative of something. The yeast then becomes a representative. You could say the leaven, the yeast, equals sin. Sweep the sin out. Why? Because I've delivered you and I've called you to be holy. Now it's time to sweep the sin out. And this is the feast. This feast is supposed to be telling us this. So deliverance calls for holiness. Leaven represents sin. Now let me just try to prove this to you because I think this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Let me just give you a synopsis of what's happening here. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church who had some messed up things about them but he calls them saints of God. They're true people of God. And he tells them in chapter five that they've actually been tolerating something that not even pagans would tolerate. And that is they're, they're tolerating the sin of a man having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And they're acting like everything's okay. They're saying, uh, it's fine. You can take the Lord's table. This is between you and God. Who are we to judge? And Paul says, listen, Though I'm absent in body with you, I'm present in spirit. And I'm pronouncing judgment on this, but you, the whole people of God, should have already pronounced judgment on this. This is wrong. This is not good. And Paul, in all boldness, the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul. He says, when you are all assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. He's saying the toleration of this is boasting in, in not a good way. So he says this. Do you know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The, the whole lump is the, is the picture for the church. And, and, and now leaven, as we have back in Exodus, becomes a representative of sin. This man is, is sinning with his stepmom. And he, and he says, cleanse it out. Discipline this man from the church. Take him off the rolls and tell him to not take communion because he's acting like he's not a Christian. He's holding on to sin. He's holding on to the old leaven of the old life. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is why we pursue holiness, even in the church. This is why we pursue holiness in our own life, because Christ was sacrificed for us. All this grace pours out to us so, and calls forth holy living to sweep out sin. That's why we take a time to confess our sins and are assured of our pardon before communion. It's one of the reasons that, you know, we ask that people be baptized before they take communion. I, I know this is confusing for some of us, but it is, it is a command of God. And if we're evaluating our own hearts and lives, and we're trying to confess sin, and if we know that God has called us to be baptized, but we're holding on to that sin for whatever reason, or, or maybe we're just mistaken, but God is saying, this is a command of God. We're saying, obey that command, you know, sweep out the leaven of the old life. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So he doesn't just tell us to sweep out sin in our life. He tells us what to put in its place, exactly what he is. He's sincere and truthful. He says, let us be like that. So no one, friends, holding on to sin, no one holding on to sin can also hold on to God by faith. If you hold on to your sin so tightly, but you say, God, I really want you to just a second, it doesn't work like that. Now, I didn't say you cannot sin. I didn't say Christians won't sin. I'm saying you can't hold on to it like you love it and love God as well. It's a process. This is a process for us that God is, he, he's telling us to sweep it out. He knows that leaven's going to be in our house and we have to do the process of keep sweeping it out and therefore we have confession, repentance, and, and, and he forgives us. It doesn't mean we never sin. It means we don't tolerate sin in our life. The celebration of this new festival, right? So Passover and communion, Jesus turned the Passover and communion into the Lord's Supper for us. You can look at that in Luke 22, 14 through 20. Jesus takes the Passover meal and says, this is now the Lord's table, holy communion. And Paul tells us not to celebrate it with the unleavened bread of malice or evil, but with sincerity and truth. See, he's he's saying for us to replace envy and gossip Gossip is a, a sign of malice. It's a sign that you have malice in your heart. Replace envy and gossip. Replace malice and evil. That's like porneia is the Greek word, sexual sin. Replace sexual sin, envy and gossip with sincerity and truth. With genuineness and truth. Genuineness is when you hold a piece of pottery up to the sun and you can see through it, right? It's transparent. You know what's there. That's what we're supposed to be. A dear friend in our application session on Friday reminded me that, that we need to be thinking about it this way. Re- recognizing, so apply it this way. Re- recognizing evidences of grace in people's life, life while also calling them to holiness. That's a way to be sincere and truthful. You know, if you, if you would not say that thing to that person's face, but you would say it to a bunch of other people behind their back, that's called malice. And God is saying, let's replace that with recognizing evidences of grace and speaking truth in love. Holiness, right? Uh, uh, call, calling people to holiness, to fight sin, to, to call out sin in our lives. So we bought the old leaven. Can be also to confess our sin to one another. This is a communal event, a sweeping out of, of doing this, this festival together. We... We are meant to, to bring other people into our lives, to, to actually to rid ourselves of the malice and evil, to help us do that. I'm so encouraged by some of the brothers I spend time with that are, that are doing this. As one author said, they're bringing the fiercest battle into the light. This is one of the ways we do that. We, we bring sin out to the light. Unhealthy things, for the most part, do not grow in the light. Healthy things grow in the sunshine as they're brought out under the, out of the wideness of, of the sun. My friends, all of this taken together, pursuing holiness, we cannot do on our own. We can't even do it just on our own and with other people. We need the Holy Spirit. Here, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He put it this way. Have you ever tried, he said repent, but I'm gonna replace it with pursue holiness. Have you ever tried to pursue holiness if so, if you tried without the Spirit to help you, it is, it, it is basically an urging to do the impossible. A rock might as soon weep, and a desert might as soon blossom as a sinner repent of his own accord, pursue holiness of his own accord. If God should offer heaven to a man simply on the terms of his own holiness, heaven would be as impossible as it is by good works. For a man can no more pursue holiness of himself than he can perfectly keep God's law. For holiness involves the very principle of perfect obedience to the law of God. It seems to me that in, re- 
pursuing holiness, there is the whole law solidified and condensed. And if a man can pursue holiness of himself, there is no need of a savior. He may as well go up to heaven, up the steep sides of Mount Sinai at once. You might as well use the Ten Commandments to get to heaven. Charles Spurgeon is telling us, you can't do it. You must have the Holy Spirit to help you. In the power of the Holy Spirit, let's sweep out sin. Let's sweep out the leaven. Let's pursue holiness. Let's, let's pursue grace. Let's do it together in, in communion. So God not only delivered us for holiness, he also delivered us to worship. So here, as we come to the end here, he, the, the lamb that was slain provided for us deliverance from judgment and his body provided us a feast that we might worship him. So Moses' repetition of the command here in, in verses 21 through 28, it's a, basically a repetition of the command, uh, only adding that the thing you used to apply the blood was a, a plant, a, a, some hyssop that you'd use as a paintbrush to put on there. And, and then he, he, he tells them one other thing. Moses' repetition of the command is, is an emphasis and an aid for memory. Remember to worship. So they're headed to the promised land. Looking back to Passover led to worship. So they, they were not just drawn out to worship. They were commanded to worship. They were commanded. That command led to them worshiping him, to, to do worship. Verse 27 it says, you shall say, when your kids ask you about this, it, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Friends, worship is remembering. Worship is remembering what the Lord has said, and then obeying his commands. It's not all worship is, but that, that's the, the basic essence of its first steps. Worship is God having said something to then do it. It's remembering his commands. It's remembering what he has done. It's, it's obedience also to those commands and serving the Lord. God has, has reminded them that he delivered them for worship. That's the whole point of Exodus, we think. That's what we've given the, the title of our sermon series, Delivered to Worship. This is why these people were brought out of Egypt. That's why they're delivered from the bondage and oppression of slavery and given freedom so that they would worship. They would worship him. And they do right after in, in Exodus 15, Moses' song to God. But then also, as he comes, as they come to Mount Sinai, and God gives his commands, this is also an act of worship. Obedience is an act of worship. It's not done to be delivered. It's done because you've been delivered. So the people bow and worship. They've done that one other time. In chapter 4, verse 31, the Israelites hear through Moses and see through the signs of Aaron and Moses that God has come to deliver them. They now recognize that God heard them, God remembered his covenant, God saw, and God knew. And what do they do? In chapter four, verse 31, they bow their heads and worship. And the people believed. They believed Aaron and Moses. They believe the signs. They believe his words. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God has been calling them. He's been doing acts of deliverance for them so that they would come and worship him. Worship is not only about our feelings, friends. We worship sometimes in spite of our feelings. We want our affections and our feelings to be in line with the truth of God's words. But sometimes we worship even though we don't feel it. 
Worship is obeying what is commanded, verses 21 through 28. And it's remembering what is revealed. 29 through 32 tells us he's, he's revealed them and he's done, he's done these judgments finally on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt so that they would remember and worship. He has gone out and struck down that he might deliver his people to worship him. Obeying the commands leads to remembering what God has done. Again, verse 27. Worship comes with knowledge of God and his commands. Romans 12, 1 tells tells us this in, in really clear language. After Paul gives this 11 chapters of what it means to be justified in Christ, he then calls for, he calls for holy living. And he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, if you have an ESV in front of you, uh, an English Standard Version Bible, there's a footnote there that says, uh, um, or for spiritual worship, it could be rational service. It could be rational service. He's called us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He has called us by his mercies, delivered us out from our slavery and bondage to sin that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, which Paul says is our rational service. This is our, and so it's been translated, spiritual worship. Because service and worship are not contradictory. We, when the Israelites were called out that they may serve the Lord, it meant that they were meant to worship the Lord. They were supposed to obey him and serve him, which was worship. All of that is worship. All of life is worship. This is our corporate gathering of worship here on Sunday morning. But as you go out from this place, everything you do is meant to be done as a life of worship. You live coram Deo before the face of God. And he is calling you out from your sin to worship him. That's obedience and service. Now, it's not apart from our feelings and our emotions. We can raise our hands and our songs and we can, we, we can cry tears or not. We can, uh, we can be emotional or, or, or not. But God has commanded our emotions to, to worship him in, in happiness and sometimes in sadness and, 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 and sometimes in, in just a plain old, I'm going to do this. And I feel dull, but it's fine. I'm going to do it. God has called us out to worship him. So what are some ways that we serve and obey the Lord? What are some ways we worship him? This feast is calling us to this. It's calling out of us worship to God. So what do we do? Discipleship 101. God has called us in Matthew 28 to be to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all things, everything that I've commanded. So in one sense, everything in the Bible. How, how do we worship God? Obeying everything in the Bible. Repenting when we don't. We can come and hear the gospel on Sunday. Go and take the gospel. Preach it to yourself and preach it to those who are opening up their lives to you. Take communion. Discipleship 101 is all of these things. Giving of yourself. Your talent, time, and treasure. Your talent, treasure, and time. Your energy, your income, and your time. To God. To serve him, to serve this church, to serve other ministries in, uh, in the broader community of Christ, to serve your neighborhood. God has called us to all these things, to evangelism, disciples, should tell other people about Jesus and to help them follow Jesus. So why? Why are we delivered, called to holiness and worship? It's because Yahweh provided a lamb whose blood delivered us from judgment. His body and blood delivered us from the judgment that was to come. And it provided a feast for us that we'll take in a moment so that he might 
make us, he might deliver us and make us holy and draw out our worship. So friends, interruptions are not all bad. Maybe God has interrupted your life today. Friend, if this is the first time you heard the gospel that Jesus died on the cross, he was the lamb to take away the sins of the world, that he was, he was buried and put in the grave for three days, but then rose again from the dead. If this is the first time you've heard that, that you need to be delivered from your sin, I, I encourage you to talk to somebody here today, talk to me, talk to someone you know in the congregation. Turn to Christ. He will save you. He will save you today. He will rescue you from your bondage to sin. Please don't leave today without doing that. Every Sunday, friends, is an interruption. Seth, right at the beginning of your week, God has interrupted us to remind us that his boundless love conquers our boundless sin. He means for you to take that in your week, to walk out of here remembering, I was delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And in his power, I'm going to pursue holiness, I'm going to pursue righteousness, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to bring worship to him in everything I do. The blood of the lamb, Yahweh provided a lamb whose blood delivered us from judgment, whose body provided a a feast for us. Friends, in a moment, we are going to observe communion together. And like I said before, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, actually turned the Passover meal, they call it the Seder meal, into the Lord's Supper, this, what we have before us. We'll, you know, those of us who are in Christ and have been following him, we'll, we'll come down this aisle together, expressing our solidarity, and we'll go and we'll get the Lord's Supper, the bread, the cup. We'll go back to our seats and we'll hold it, and, and we're gonna take it together, expressing the family nature of this meal. And Jesus, you know, when the hour had come and he reclined at the table with the apostles, he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and gave thanks. And he took the bread and he divided it among them. And he said that from now on, I won't drink the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks for it. He broke it. It's just as his body was gonna be broken, saying to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do in remembrance of me. Same thing he did with the cup. Jesus was telling us that the Lord's, the Passover meal was pointing to something greater. And, And so does this meal, points to something greater for us. One day, our Lord Jesus will dine with us the marriage supper of the Lamb. He, we will sit and feast together. This is an hors d'oeuvre. This is a reminder that that's going to happen. It's also a, a reminder of what has happened. The Lamb slain for the world delivered us from judgment and provided a feast that draws out our holiness, draws out our worship. So this is a part of our worship service. This is worship, friends. We just want to remind you that uh, this is for Christians. This cannot make you a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you are so welcome here. We love you. We're thankful that you're here. But this meal is is setting us apart as Christians. It's telling us that we're Christians. And ordinarily, the the way the Christian life works is, is they just start following Jesus as Savior and Lord. And one of the things Jesus told us to do, uh, the first thing he told us to do is to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, I, want to, I would love to talk to you about that. That's, a, that's another ordinance that God has given to us to celebrate and to unify our church. So if, if you're a believer who's been baptized, you're, you're welcome to take this meal when, it, when the time comes. One of the other things that God has, Jesus has called us to do, we know this through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, and that is, is that uh, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So if you think we're excluding you from this in a mean way, we're not trying to be mean. Paul said that some people die and sleep 
They, they, they are sick and die or sleep because they drank and ate this unworthily. And so we're asking you to think about, is there sin in your life? Confess it and God will forgive you. Turn to Jesus alone for salvation before you take the bread and the cup. And so we're going to have a time of a corporate prayer of confession where I'll pray and then a time of silence for personal confession. All of that is meant to remind us that we are truly forgiven and only forgiven by God, okay? And, and so I'll pray, I'll give you time, and then we'll sing. And on the first song, it's time to come and, and get communion, okay? So let me pray. Father, we do come before you as a people who know that we're sinful, that we don't deserve your forgiveness, but you have you've given your own son anyway, You've given the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. It's not just a symbol that he shed his blood or gave his life. He did it for us. And God, as we think and we sing about the fountain filled with blood, we want to be reminded that there was a process and a cost to this. And you have called out our confession. You said, come to me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You've told us that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to do it. So we confess that we have had malice and evil in our hearts this week. That we've gossiped about people when we shouldn't have. God, help us to make that right. Help us to go to those we've sinned against. Forgive us for we're all sexual sinners here in this place. Not one of us escapes that. But we bring that before you, knowing that as sexual sinners, we need healing. Forgive us for loving sex more than you. Forgive us for loving, in, for loving money and reputation more than you. Friends, I give you a moment to confess your own sins. Because you forgive our sins and heal us of our diseases, we say this in Jesus' name, amen.